Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and a very warm welcome to this event on leveling up. What is it and does it work? With me, Bronwyn Maddox, I'm the director, Neil O'Brien and Sebastian Payne. I'm going to plunge straight into housekeeping um, or my team will not going to forgive me. We have, um, we're very pleased to have an audience, a very large audience, I think even possibly one of our record ones, joining us online and uh, many people in the room as well. Very warm welcome to you as well. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG leveling up. Sorry, it's a long one. Leveling up with two L's in the middle for those who are inclined to go the American way. Please do follow and tweet along. Those of you watching online, please do send in your questions um, as early as you like. That means now. And we always love to know uh, who you are or your first name and where you're watching from, if you can do that. You can put your, your questions in the panel on the right of your screen and we will get them right away. And we're, of course, going to call our members of the audience here as well. And we've got microphones in the uh, old-fashioned, now resurrected way. We're going to have our video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours, thanks to the excellent IFG team. And so I don't have to give an awful lot of introduction, I think, but Neil O'Brien is a Conservative MP for Harbour and has been Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities since September last year. He's previously an advisor to Theresa May as Prime Minister on Industrial Policy and also worked as an advisor to George Osborne on the Northern Powerhouse. Sebastian Payne is Whitehall editor at the Financial Times and has published this book, which I can wave. He can probably wave one too. Which is much harder on Zoom. Zoom. You're like, uh, Neil, you're allowed to wave a copy of the white paper, though we have waved, <laughs> we have waved that very large document from this platform before. So. And um, Sebastian's previously been a reporter and, uh, at the uh, Spectator and Daily Telegraph. This book, Broken Heartlands, was published in September last year and covered his journey through seats in the Midlands and north of England, including Gateshead, where he grew up, the so-called Red Wall, and looked at what is happening there and why those seats switched to voting Conservative in 2019. So lots to discuss here. Um, very warm welcome, though, first to both of you. Thanks for breaking off very busy days. I wanted to start with you, Neil. And just say, it's, it's, a, it's a couple of months since the white paper came out. It's a very large document, mm -hmm. uh, much analysed by now. What's happened since then? So all those different things, those priorities that we set out in the white paper, we've started to uh, put into operation. So as you remember, there were uh, four broad themes to the, the white paper about, uh, broadly speaking, improving economic performance, spreading opportunity and improving public services, improving quality of life in private place and then uh, extending uh, devolution and empowering local mm. leaders. Those are the kind of four headings of what levelling up is fundamentally about. And on all four of those, uh, we have uh, been making progress since we published the white paper. So one of the themes of uh, levelling up white paper, as you uh, would know, is to do things slightly differently to some previous efforts at what you would have called kind of regional policy in the past. Uh, and one of the ways in which uh, we are trying to do differently things differently is to... Um, I think not just about kind of specific funding for levelling up, um, you know, the levelling up fund, the shared prosperity fund, the community renewal fund, all these different things we've got, but to actually go after the totality of public spending to think about the cake rather than just the cherry on the cake. And so we've started the process of um, uh, rethinking some of how we 
deliver those kind of large government budgets. So uh, we set an ambition in the white paper, for example, to uh, grow the amount of public investment in research and development mm. outside the greater southeast uh, by a third over the next three years, you know, a very, very rapid rate of increase. So Bayes are now working through, uh, they published the kind of first step in that, um, but now working through the steps of how we actually deliver that. We've set up the three innovation accelerators that we announced in the white paper in uh, Glasgow and in Greater Manchester in the West Midlands, and they are now starting to meet. People are uh, uh, beginning to draw up their plans. And the same would be true of um, things like housing funding, where we have uh, uh, got rid of the so-called 80-20 rule that tended to put more money in the southeast. Uh, we've started to reshape culture spending as well with announcements on that and uh, the uplift in the culture budget going outside the capital into places where mm. culture spending has been lower. So a great, a great work of kind of reshaping public spending to target um, places that are struggling uh, in different ways has begun. On the kind of opportunity front, we literally just yesterday published the school's white paper, the next steps in terms of um, uh, improving the performance of the school system, getting more schools into really good families of schools, multi-academy uh, trusts, doing more on tutoring to hit that mission we set out in the white paper on um, uh, improving you know, basic numeracy and literacy in primary schools and basic skills. Uh, in terms of uh, pride in place, so, uh, Chancellor in his um, uh, uh, spring statement announced the opening of the next round of the Leveling Up Fund, which helps to do some of those things. And in the, in the coming uh, weeks, uh, in the very near future, we will finally announce the Shared Prosperity Fund that helps you, uh, helps places to, to deliver those kind of improvements to the local community, to the town centre, to the local park, those kind of uh, things that are important for quality of life in the local place. And finally, on that, fa- that last theme about devolution and local empowerment, we've started devolution uh, discussions with a very large number of places. And so I've been meeting with um, uh, my local government colleagues in Cornwall, in Devon, uh, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire, Leicestershire, Norfolk, Suffolk, uh, uh, Hull and East Yorkshire, North Yorkshire and um, uh, 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 York, uh, Durham, the North East. Um, uh, I'm basically doing a tour of all the places that Seb's very reasonably priced book uh, uh, talks about and being up in Blythe, you know, uh, 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 seeing for myself some of the issues that Seb talks about. So on that front, we're hammering away, and I'm glad to say that a lot of places are really going for kind of ambitious devolution agreements and are interested in uh, new structures, elected local, directly elected local leaders over big geographies. So that is going very excitingly. Sorry, that's a long answer to a short question. I'm so sorry, but there's a lot going on. No, on no, all, no, these no, no, all right, thanks. There's a lot you said there that we can pick up on. I don't want to come back to the devolution points, but you mentioned in that spring statement, um, we obviously very uh, dominated by questions of cost of, of living, of energy, and so on. But a, a, a small cry did go up. There doesn't seem to be a lot about levelling up in the spring statement. What would you say to that? So I'd say the, the contents of the, of the spring statement... Um, uh, did do leveling up to you know the half a billion pounds um, in terms of community support for the most vulnerable. Some of the other changes that are kicking in, and, and this goes to the point I was trying to make about um, you know leveling up is not just about some fund that's called leveling up. It's about the totality of what you do with the tax and benefit system and total public spending. So, for example, I would say that the changes to the um, UC taper rate, uh, which will leave something like two million people a thousand better off with uh, full-time workers, that is a huge piece of leveling up. Uh, or the national living wage, which is obviously just about to go up, mm. will be one of the highest um, national minimum wages anywhere in the world. Again, making a, a full-time worker about £1,000 better off. That, although 
you know, that's not traditionally been thought of as regional policy. Some of those, those tools are our most powerful tools for levelling up. Um, uh, they're just not called a, a levelling up fund. It's about changing the way government uh, does business, or as Andy Haldin uh, puts it, you know, changing the wire of Whitehall in a fundamental way. Mm. Okay, well, th- thank you for that. Sebastian, I wonder if you could give us your view, just before we plunge into some more of the detail, on the government's account of levelling up. Um, we've here at the IFG put out uh, many times a chart on um, how many governments over the, the decades, never mind years, have come up with their own version of regional policy and other things for further education and so on. Uh, but it, governments for ages have wanted to do something about regional policy and they've had to go at it under different, different banners. What do you make of this government's attempt as encapsulated in that white paper? Well, the funny thing about levelling up was it's a policy to try and fit a slogan. And it was when Boris Johnson stood outside Downing Street after the 2019 election and said, we're going to get Brexit done, unite the country and level up. And then after that, people saw, thought, crikey, levelling up, what's that? We're going to have to think of something to fit within that. And I think what has developed in the two years since that election, two and a half years almost now, is looking at this issue of regional policy. And I think when Neil worked for George Osborne and for Theresa May, and of course, a lot of this started with Mrs May with the jazz the just about managings, which I think was an earlier incarnation of trying to have a go at this issue of regional inequality. I think the white paper itself is the first real serious attempt to look at how you address those issues that were exposed in the 2016 Brexit referendum, the 2019 general election. And it's trying to build on what's happened in the past, because as, as I looked at through the book's journey. You know, Howard Wilson tried this in the 1960s. Uh, Michael Heseltine tried it in the 1990s. Tony Blair tried it in the early noughties. George Osborne tried it with the Northern Powerhouse. They're all trying to address this same question. The fact is that the country is too centralised, its growth is too much in one place, um, and there's too much power held in one place. And I think the white paper does speak to all those themes. My question, I think this goes to what Neil was talking about, is... What we're talking about here would be the biggest transformation in the British state in in literally hundreds of years. It's as a big challenge as Brexit. Is there enough capacity, time, grip and money to actually deliver it within the 2030 um, targets that are set out there? And more practically, is there enough time in two years to get the government enough to say to go to the country in the spring of uh, 24 and say, look, we've had, a ba- we've had a bash at this. Here's a down payment on levelling up. Please give us another five years and we could do more. There is an interesting question about whether Labour will actually sign up to the 12 missions, which I think they actually could, because if you listen to Lisa Nandy, who is the um, the chief spokesperson for Labour on this, she's very positive about the overall aspirations. I think she might differ about how exactly you get there. But it is extraordinary that this defining domestic mission has got a lot of political unity from both sides, and that is what's different from the past efforts of doing this, that before, when it was the Northern Powerhouse, Labour was quite critical of it. When it was Michael Heseltine and the Enterprise Zones, again, Labour was quite critical of it. And again, with Howard Wilson, his new towns in the 60s, that then Tories were very critical. Now, we have total political unity that this is the thing that needs to be done. This is the most important domestic policy challenge facing the country after the cost of living crisis. So I think it's a great opportunity, but really, it's going to all be about delivery and proving you can actually do these things, because we've tried it before, and I just do wonder with everything else facing the government, not least cost of riveting inflation, the war in Ukraine, is there going to be the capacity to get enough progress in two years 
years to hit the eight-year progress. All right, so I want to come on to these questions of, of delivery, which you've, you've put your finger on, um, which hang there, because um, for all that you say, look, Labour has uh, disagreed with some you know, previous manifestations mm. of these aspirations. Um, this is an aspirational programme, and not many politicians would, um, would remove themselves from that aspiration. It's a way of talking about inequality by a conservative prime minister, but that builds in aspiration into it, um, but makes many, many uh, claims or at least targets for that from economic to devolution of power to cultural and so on. But Neil, uh, short time. Um, let's, let's start with the power question that Sebastian raised. Mm. What, and the, you talk about devolution, mm. what can be done, say, in the next two years, uh, on specifically that sharing out power, moving power out of, out of Westminster? Well, I think quite a lot. Um, I think you make a good point. So your chart about, you know, the 40 different regional schemes we've had over mm. the last 40 years, I think we actually borrowed for the white, the white paper because it is a good point that there's this constant chopping and changing of emphasis and schemes and so on. And one of the important things about local devolution is, as well as um, uh, having someone who can bring together all the different policies you need to get growth going in one place, um, you know the skill spending, the transport investments, the planning, the, uh, uh, the digital infrastructure, and so on, into a coherent plan. The other thing that uh, stronger local leadership uh, can give you is also consistency, longevity, and a, a sense of uh, uh, a plan for a place that can survive the chopping and changing of ministers and governments over time. And it's difficult to find examples of places that have really turned themselves around economically without that kind of strong leadership. And in particular, the model that strong we... Strong local leadership. Strong local leadership, yeah. uh, I mean to say. Uh, and the model we've gone for are the kind of directly elected mayors across um, uh, city regions. Um, I think is our best go yet uh, at trying to find a geography that can really work. So everyone knows the history uh, in the UK. Um, we always had a relatively centralised uh, country compared to some other peers like Germany. Um, uh, over successive waves, it became more and more centralised. Mrs Thatcher took out the uh, uh, the GLC and the Metropolitan um, County Councils because you had the loony left and it was just a destructive um, approach from some of those councils. We then tried to go around local councils with things like urban development corporations. We just like the councils. Derek Hatton is so terrible, we cannot do anything with him. We just got to go around him. Um, and then, you know, in the Labour years, you had regionalism, we're going to have these things at a very large scale. We're going to have you know, the southeast of England, the southwest, and so on. Good scale, but no, you know, no directly elected uh, leadership. Um, the first time we tried to do elected leadership for these things in the northeast, it was rejected by 80% of people in the northeast in the referendum. And that was because it just wasn't a fit for the local identity. And so we're now on a different geography, a bit smaller, you know, Teesside, uh, for example. And that, I think, is a model that is going to stick he said, knocking on wood, because... That's not wood, but anyway, by a point taken. Yeah. <laughs> this is going, this is going, this is going even, even worse than I, than I feared. Um, uh, uh, I think it does now, we've got something that is the balance between a decent scale so you can actually persuade Whitehall departments to devolve significant powers to it. It's not just you know, a tiny council with 20 people in it. Uh, and on the other hand, it actually fits with local geographies, real places, so not, not points of the compass like the northwest, but Greater Manchester. Merseyside, South Yorkshire, you know, places that people can identify with and people that they know they are, right? It's not some county council who's in charge. It's like, 
you know, Andy Street, Ben Houchen. I was going to just say on that, and um, when I spoke to David Miliband um, in the course of the book, he actually said that that was one of New Labour's mistakes, that they believed in devolution, but going for the concept of a region just didn't fit with people at all, because no one thinks about themselves from coming from a region. One of the things I did a lot in the journey is to ask people I met, when you go on holiday, where do you say you come from? And that mm. tells you an awful lot about people's identity. You know, so do you... and, what, and what did they say? So the interesting example of this is Manchester. So when I was in Hayward and Middleton, which is on the northern outskirts of Manchester, um, in Hayward, they all say they come from Lancashire. In Middleton, they all say they come from Manchester. Nobody says they come from Greater Manchester. Nobody <laughs> says they come from the northwest. Uh, and that... This and a lot of them still go about, on about the pre nineteen seventy four boundaries of counties, but that's a particularly older demographic, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's why this is one thing that I think is interesting about the idea of your regional governors that I think has been talked about. You know, you talked about Teesside. We also talking about a mayor in Cornwall. Cornwall's a lot bigger than Teesside and doesn't have a some coherent identity. What do you do about that? Well, it's, it's physically a bit bigger. It's slightly fewer people. Um, uh, and it is, it's got a very strong sense of identity and um, has, in fairness, had you previous... You north to south Cornwall, they might have a different view on that. No, no, this, all these places, they have diversity within them as well, and we always try to recognise that, and there's different things that different places uh, want. But I do think that there is, you know, you know, there's a lot of things about the Cornish identity from the, the, to the food to the flag to the language to, you know, 101 other things. Um, so I think it is it's a fit that will um, kind of endure... And it lets us it lets us fill that gap because mm. in the UK we just had central government and then you've potentially had Rutland uh, Council, you know, forty thousand residents and nothing in between. There's, there hasn't been something that Whitehall Departments has been prepared to yeah. give significant powers to because it's at the right scale. So and I, do, I, I think it is making a huge difference. I was talking to yeah. Andy Street's team who do adult skills, um, and they're doing some things that they're just doing it better than central government used to when we ran it. They, there's less bombs on seats. They're just it's higher quality stuff. Yeah. But they're also doing some stuff we could never have done from Whitehall, right? They are uh, getting coordination between their local colleges so they don't all try and put on the same course at the same time. One's more specialised in this and the other in that. And that can only be done at that level. Uh, It couldn't be done more locally and it couldn't be done nationally. So I do think there is all kinds of opportunities being unlocked by this programme. So we're talking, I mean, you've both been talking about local identity and the strength of local identity, and you've been talking about more, more recognition of that in having more, more representatives and a bit about what mayors can, can do. But I'm wondering about the money um, and whether there's also an increase in power as well as that in what, what these people can do. Um, Sebastian, what's your take on this? How much money is needed? Because one of the things we found has tripped up these regional strategies years and years is when it comes down to it, central government, at just that point, and everyone's talked about regional identity and all this, and at just that point of giving either significant tax-raising powers locally or much more money mm. from central government, it just somehow doesn't happen. Well, I think that's the exact issue. There's, I think, 139 pots that Neil's department has identified of money that goes to various local government for various schemes. And mm. I could probably name five of them. Don't know about the 134. You can do that later. Um, and the, the, the issue with that is that there's no coherence to where that spending is going, what it's being used for. Um, there needs to be, obviously, in my view, a lot more money that's been put forward now. And, of course, those 2030 goals, we've got several more spending reviews to happen before then, a lot more budgets. There are more opportunities to have a bite of the cherry. But for me, one of the things that was maybe a little bit lacking in the white paper was this issue about skills and there's buy-in from DfE and the Department for Work and Pensions because 
I think investing in local governments, and there's no doubt about it, you know, we've had £100 billion has been cut from local governments over the past decade. The central government funding has been cut by 70% since 2010. And you know, the government's argument is they had to do that due to the financial crisis. But that does mean strategic capacity at local mm. um, level has really gone. And that's a big problem for trying to redevelop things, having to build that back up. So in some ways, I think you need to be spending a lot of money now on local government and on further education and on developing skills can then try and achieve your goals of reducing, um, you know, um, improving, sorry, life expectancy, reducing literacy and innumeracy. So, you know, and one of the things that's often compared to on this is when Germany was uh, unified, there was a trillions, I think, of fiscal transfers that went from west to east um, to try and just throw money at all these issues. And East Germany still lags behind on nearly every major public policy indicator from the west. So this stuff is not easy. And I think there is still a scepticism from the Treasury, if I might be allowed to say that, about this agenda, because the Treasury's mindset is always the best return for money. Where do you get that? London, the southeast. And they've obviously ripped up the green book to try and challenge that. But I still get the general sense that if Neil was sitting in there and was able to just open a checkbook, there's so many more things you'd like to spend money on than is maybe kicking around at the moment. I mean, this point about the Treasury is not one to be delicate or coy about. What, what do, how, do, how do you answer so there's, this? There's, there's several parts. I don't, I don't think that is quite right. I, uh, so um, you're completely right about the need for uh, the right structures and, and, and local leadership. Let me give you an example of that, which is in um, research and development, obviously crucial to growth, high-tech jobs, new good jobs and so on. And we've had several bites of this. I mean, in the audience is John Godfrey, who was my boss at Number 10 Policy Unit. And then when we were doing that, we did the local industrial strategies, which were about trying to get an assessment of what the Mm -hmm. scientific strengths of different places were. Uh, And although lots of things intervened and Brexit and blah, 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 uh, uh, we are now through the innovation accelerators that we set up in the white paper, now building on those. So all that work that was done for them can flow into uh, uh, the creation of those things. And so what we're doing in R&D is to do several things at once. So... Firstly, you set an overall target, you know, a huge increase uh, in that spend outside the Greater Southeast. Why are we doing that? Why are we, for the first time, setting regional targets for, for R&D spending, which we've never done before? Well, it's because we've seen, since 1997, a, a growing concentration of public spending in just three cities of Oxford, Cambridge, and London. They're all great <coughs> cities. They're all very important. We don't want to starve them. Their budgets will continue to increase dramatically in real terms. But we also want to spend a decent wedge of that in the scientific and industrial strengths of the rest of the country as well. Uh, recognizing that there's been that concentration. So you could just set a target and then you know, we'll, from Whitehall, go and do the business. But I think you need more than that. You need to create the institutions that will bring together um, a, a vision for what is achievable in different places and will bend those wider spending streams towards what is um, uh, locally important in each of those places. You know, in Glasgow, there's all sorts of exciting things around quantum, optoelectronics, all that kind of stuff. In the West Midlands, all kinds of exciting things around EV and uh, battery electric um, and so on and so forth. And trying to make all of these disparate Whitehall silos, mm. all of our different funding and councils, do you have, I mean, university have, funding, all sing. Power. Do you have the power to sit there and, and survey these 139 um, different pots of money, if you like, and and say, look, this is where it's going to go. Yeah, Join so it all it, we have a commitment in the white paper to, to work towards funding consolidation, to having a few of these pots more joined up. We've already made some good progress on that in transport for the large cities mm-hmm. with what we call the Sustainable City Region Transport Settlements, known mm-hmm. in the trade as the crusts. And that brings together a bunch of different funding streams for transport and tops them up so they can do more. 
that's a good example of where we can potentially go through the new devolution deals and the deepening of the devolution deals we've already got for places like uh, the West Midlands and, and Greater Manchester to bring more things into those single pots so you can move mm. money around to, to mm. fit local priorities and just to get away from the problem of you know lots of little pots competitively allocated, mm. coming and going, different rules every time, spending lots of money bidding for things. You know, there's, mm. there's some good things about competitive funding and that's a, an important part of the diet, but you need to have a balanced diet and you need to have a baseload of predictable funding as well and that's why... We're setting up the UK Shared Prosperity Fund as a kind of non-competitive allocated fund so you know where you stand and then mm. you can have, as I say, a sort of balanced diet. Sebastian, how much do you think this is an answer? Um, as you were describing the, the East German example, which is relevant in some ways, mm. this is a huge amount of money mm. uh, over decades with no challenge, political challenge, I mean, mm. everyone committed um, to this particular mission and still, as you say, um, and as is very evident, parts of East Germany lag behind. Mm. Does Britain have the money and is this government allocating the money to make this realistic? I think the thing that's important about this is the fact that this is going to be the, the, the terrain the next general election is going to be fought on because uh, the Tories mm. can't stay in power unless they hold on to as much of the red wall as possible yep. and Labour can't get back into power if it doesn't take back some of it. So in some ways, Sedgefield is the new bellwether seat that is going to dictate where politics goes and those are the places that are going to be most targeted by the levelling up agenda. So there's a real political drive to make this at the front and centre of things and ensure there is more money. And there's obviously fiscal tensions within the government, as we saw in the spring statement, about do you spend, do you do um, look at tax cuts? And, of course, there was, I think, £150 billion of new day-to-day white horse spending in the budget last year. And we should not scoff that. That is a lot of money. But in many ways, that is just rebuilding what was cut mm. over the past decade um, due to you know the austerity years. And the question is, as I said, that brings you back up to a good level Level where you can start to improve things, but where do you then go after that? And I think consolidation is a really important part of this because it's very difficult, I think, for the government to argue you're, you're putting lots of money when you're doing X, Y, and Z and all these things. And you mentioned the Shared Prosperity Fund, Neil. We've got to mention that obviously a lot of money is going to be cut from the EU's um, regional development funds, that obviously a lot of money went to places like if you go to you know, North Shields in the North East, mm. for example, the mm-hmm. whole fish key was paid for by the EU. And North Shields had one of the biggest Brexit votes in the country. And there's been, I think, some FT reporting about the question about whether the Shared Prosperity Fund mm-hmm. is going to make up for all the money that was taken away when we left the EU. Well, you'll, you'll have to wait. Uh, uh, not too much longer to have the exact numbers for every place. But I was talking to the leader of the council there the other day, and uh, his point to me as well, it's a point I completely understand. We have committed to, to on that particular point to matching what was spent by those EU structural funds uh, for each of the nations. So we're completely sympathetic um, uh, to the point, uh, and it's one that is reinforced for me when I meet local leaders. But on this point about East Germany, is a really good one, because I, I have often uh, prayed that point in aid, and the Prime Minister talked a lot about it in his speech mm. Um, um, last summer but actually it's sort of uh, it's sort of reinforcing the point we're making so sometimes you see big numbers about what was spent mm. in uh, in East Germany but uh, there's a good report by the Haller Institute um, on all this it, it, those numbers include the totality of public spending so they're including what we would call, call welfare transfers you know unemployment benefit and so on and so uh, in one sense we need to be careful about the numbers because they they're not just funding for growth and so on they are all of public spending on the other hand, actually, yes, that's the right approach. You've got to think about the totality of public spending. So I was up in uh, Blyth the other day, one of the places that Seb talks about in his book, 
And one of the big opportunities there is the growth of the offshore uh, wind industry, building Dogger Bank, the world's biggest offshore wind farm, humongous in undertaking, you know, huge pieces of machinery on the quayside, the world's biggest turbine blade, yada, yada, you know, single turn of one of these things could power a house for a day. Uh, humongous undertaking. It's a bit like Aberdeen, but for wind. And so the challenge for us is we are spending a lot of money on this stuff, right? Quite rightly, you're trying to get energy security and go net zero. Uh, how do we drive more of that to be UK content? How do we get more benefit for places like Blythe from that? Uh, 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 as it happens, a lot of net zero spending tends naturally towards places that are in need of, uh, need of levelling up. Mm. You don't build it in the middle of London, right? Um, but uh, uh, nonetheless, you can always do more with each of these things. So it's not like we could all, we'd all like to have infinite money to spend on endless things. Uh, the truth is it all comes out of taxpayers' uh, pockets in the end and a tax system is one of the ways you can do levelling up. Uh, and through the research I've done on, on this before, I'm, I'm very struck by the way that um, uh, the growth of uh, universal credit and its predecessors and the uh, national living wage and its predecessors have tended to narrow those income differences at the bottom end. There have been divergence at the top end over the period since 97, but they are important levelling up uh, tools. But there's no point you know, massively increasing tax on, on your working people in order to just... Re- recycle, recycle the funding. We'll always have to think about, uh, you know, a certain amount of funding, but think about how you use that better uh, in order to drive leveling up. But that there's some tough, there's some tough choices there. So one thing, just to pick up on something that Seb said that I didn't agree with. Treasury, quite rightly, will always be fo- focused on value for money. The question is, what is value for money, right? And uh, the danger, actually, with some of these things like our old ways of spending on uh, regeneration and housing and mm. so on is you create, when we talk about this in the white paper, vicious and virtual cycles where for the places that are already booming, you're pumping in more transport spending to respond to the congestion. You're putting in more housing spending to respond to the high house prices. And you end up in the odd situation where you're kind of, uh, for the overheating places, you're pouring petrol on the fire, hoping to put it out. And for the places where, you know, where the plants aren't growing, you're saying, well, we won't water you until you start growing. Mm. Right? It's sort of like you're kicking off these, these cycles and you've got to think about how you... Isn't there actually more value for money sometimes in mm. saying, well, actually, look, there's huge underuse of resources, there's an output gap, there's people who are underemployed in this place, and we could use uh, some of these, basically taking a slightly long-term view of what is the best value for money. Sometimes a short-term value view of that as well. All right. Thank you for mentioning net zero um, and how that fits in, because I'm getting a lot of questions on that as well. Sebastian, just before we go to wider questions, how do you think this is, and specifically levelling up, is going to play in the May the 5th local elections, uh, because obviously we've got this enormous cost of living mm. worries out there. So I think obviously Conservative candidates will be going out and pointing at all the physical things they possibly can to say, look, we're doing stuff for you. Because one of the things I mentioned in the book is that after the 2019 election, somebody turned to Dominic Cummings and said, what do we do now? And his response was, build shit in the north. And that's kind of exactly what the government's been trying to do since then. And you've obviously got these new hospitals, there's the, the, the railways work, there's roads, you name it. So I think you're starting to see these physical manifestations of levelling up appear in the local elections. That will be, I think, an example of that, combined with, I'm sure, a message in certain councils like Wandsworth about low taxation and that usual sort of thing. But I think this points to the challenge for 
um, May 2024 when we sort of assume the next election is going to be. Mm. Because at that point, a lot of this stuff is longer term structural change and how government money is spent. And it's very important, but it's not easy if you're living in, you know, one of the Red Wall seats to understand exactly how the Treasury's um, sort of investment cycle is going to improve your life. And in a very real sense, there has got to be a lot of physical stuff, I think, for people to be convinced this is changing. And that is happening. And whether it's a new, you know, I went to um, Ashfield in the East Midlands, um, quite near your patch, Neil. And it was during the row about MPs second jobs. And it took me an hour to find anyone who cared about that. And all they could talk about was the fact they were getting a new leisure centre. And I wrote this, and I got the most unbelievable amount of abuse from <laughs> FT readers saying, how can you, how can people not be wound up about this cronious government, etc, etc. But in Ashfield, literally all they could all they could say is, look, we're getting this brand new leisure centre and we've got a Four Seasons tribute band coming to open it in the coming months. And that's really going to change our local town. I think all this point about the... That has to count as a really positive um, message for your election campaign, doesn't it? Um, I think at this point about the physical, it is important. Some of these changes are very visible, you know, and the rail plan, 96 billion of spending, a whole new rail line between... Warrington and Mars, the new very big physical thing. As I come down on the train every morning from Leicestershire, I can see the, the electrification snaking uh, north as I go uh, south. It's a big physical thing. Some of the things are not physical, but they're tangible. You know, Project Gigabit, you know, humongous increases in, um, uh, in connectivity to gigabit internet from, I think, the stat I had written down was like less than 10% at the end of 2019 had gigabit internet. It's, uh, uh, it's now um, 60%, right, in the space of, like, despite all the pandemic and everything. Mm. So they're quite physical changes. You'll be able to get a better mobile reception because what we're doing with the shared rural network, all these sort of physical, physical investments. But it is also, I think, not just pointing at things, as, as Seb says, it is also a general sense of prosperity and, you know, is the economy doing better? And some of the things that we're doing are a bit less visible, you know, not, not politically very sexy, the expansion of the British Business Bank's SME lending to all of the northeast, to the southwest, and to Scotland and Northern Ireland. You know, not a sexy political subject, but will really help SMEs grow in those, uh, in those poorer places. Um, or what we're doing um, uh, in terms of the Global Britain Inward Investment Fund, right? This is about being a bit more competitive. Most other countries are more aggressive than us historically about match funding, gap funding to secure big inward investments like Again, up in Blythe, like the Gigafactory that they're building up there, and like Nissan in Sunderland, the Envision Nissan investment they made recently. And we are now upping our game to just match a bit more what other countries are doing. And again, that fund is not visible at the point where you announce it, but the point where you get those big inward investments, that is visible. So it's a, you know, it's a mix of stuff right. you can point at and stuff you... This okay. is a bit less tangible, but created general sense of prosperity. With, with all that on May the 6th. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Let me go to questions. We've got a terrific number of, of questions. And if you start, um, right, there's, there's going to be some here as well. Let me start on online. Sarah Ayres from the University of Bristol. Do you see tackling health inequalities specifically as an important part of levelling up? Neil, well, let's start with you, but I, uh, both of you. Um, absolutely. Um, great question, because we haven't talked too much about that uh, uh, so far. So the... Uh, white paper talked about the forthcoming health disparities white paper which will bring a lot of these things together and things like the tobacco control plan and I was up in Blackpool uh, uh, last week and it's very clear the interaction between economic problems and health problems and it's got higher smoking in pregnancy anywhere in England certainly maybe in the UK and it has lots of homes in multiple uh, occupation some of which are uh, unsafe and which you know white paper has uh, and major announcements in terms of our crackdown on kind of slum landlordism uh, 
to partly improve health and partly improve mm. the, the local environment. So those interactions are, are hugely important and have probably historically been underdone. And I just think, you know, ultimately, on public health and on prevention, we just need to think extremely radically and uh, really floor it because otherwise the NHS will just be under humongous pressure for the rest of our lifetimes because of an ageing population. So you've just got to be very imaginative and aggressive about what we do on some of these prevention efforts. So it's central to levelling up. And it interacts a bit with the devolution point as mm-hmm. well because if you have a strong, particularly single directly elected leader for a, for a health geography, they can be the people who are driving the integration agenda and, mm-hmm. and using their powers to do that. Indeed, and I was going to mention during the coronavirus pandemic, I think we saw sort of the benefits, but also some of the downsides of how centralised things are in, in terms of health. So testing was an example that if we had better local powers for NHS Trust to do their own testing, it could have been done much more effectively. Yet, as we saw, it kind of it was done locally, then it was pulled back to DH. And eventually we got there. But as we know, in the early stages of the pandemic, our response was very much undermined by our very poor testing capacity, which in turn was linked to our very poor local capacity. And one thing we should mention is, while many of these places have older populations, the national average, that, and are also getting older as well. And they're the ones that are going to face the biggest challenge with the backlog to the, um, the NHS, which is going to be a huge issue really for point. the next five years, yeah. plus, obviously, social care issues as well. And time and time again, when I was travelling around the country, people are so worried about what they're going to do, not for their parents, but also when they're older, and that means their family. So, obviously, you brought in um, the levy, which is coming in um, from this Friday, I think, is um, when the NI rise kicks in. And but I think, again, it comes back to this very boring point of just delivering this actual change on the ground and making sure local authorities, combined authorities, have the health powers, but also the capacity to be able to build up for their particular local needs because the health needs of Blackpool are totally different to Manchester. Mm-hmm. OK, thank you for those. I'm going to take a pair of questions now online, then I'm coming to the room. Um, one from Jonathan Bunn of the PA saying, for Neil, but Sebastian, you can answer as well. What is the current makeup of the levelling up task force and will a new permanent secretary responsible for levelling up be appointed when Andy, Andy Haldane departs? Since Andy Haldane was the chief economist of the Bank of England uh, on a six-month six secondment in that role before going to the RSA. And the second question, if you hold your thought on that, is from Peter Mandelson, who is a Labour... <laughs> Sorry, Peter Mandelson, to put you second on this, but uh, as a Labour for, uh, former minister on this as part of the long history of the subject, and he says levelling up requires fundamental economic structural change, but the government's industrial strategy was abolished by the Treasury and the Industrial Policy Council chaired by Andy Haldane disbanded. How does Neil reconcile this with the aims of the white paper? Neil, why don't you go first? Mm-hmm. And so I love Sebastian's views. Two totally great questions. So uh, on, the, on the former... Initially, when we started work on the white paper, we had a task force in the cabinet office. We had a, we had a kind of small unit working out of kind of number 10 cabinet office to start to coordinate uh, uh, Whitehall on this. We were then upgraded uh, uh, in the autumn to having the department, the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, and to uh, Michael Gove, I think, uh, without blowing our own trumpet, widely regarded as one of the most uh, experienced and effective cabinet ministers leading things. Um, uh, uh, although uh, Andy was always a sort of temporary uh, uh, person because he also runs the RSA. Um, uh, uh, that task force has now been folded uh, fully into the department, which now is the kind of voice in Whitehall for driving this agenda forward. And to Peter's perfectly sort of reasonable um, point, obviously, 
much of the learning we did from the, the prior industrial strategy, and I, I mentioned a bit of that earlier on, has flowed straight into this directly via Andy Haldane and uh, the focus that he brought onto um, continuity and long-term missions. That's why we've got the, uh, the 12 missions. The focus that he brought to us on kind of uh, metrics and data and improving data. Uh, Seb's got his, uh, you know, uh, delightfully, beautifully written, uh, you know, thrilling book. I've also got this exciting document free to download, which describes our kind of approach to improving data, because in so many fields, biologists doesn't have its act um, uh, together. But there is a difference, actually, between the prior industrial strategy and the levelling up agenda, which is a bit wider. We've already talked about health being in there, which wasn't really part of the industrial strategy. So it is a different thing. We do have uh, an advisory council on this, so also we continue to talk to external um, experts as well and to local stakeholders right across the, the UK. But it is a slightly different thing. But we have drawn on a lot of the, the fantastic work that does, was done by the Industrial Strategy Council. It's about not chopping and changing, point the Institute for Government also made, but having long-term consistency, about having local leadership. It's all those kind of lessons have been, have been um, pulled into it. And indeed, some of the lessons that we take from previous programmes, like Peter's um, the Ninja Agenda, the New, new Industries, New Jobs Agenda, and... and uh, some of the things that we've learned from uh, from Peter. Mm. The only thing I'd add to that briefly is that there's obviously this ideological tension which you can see about you want to be interventionist in some respects, but also I think one thing that sets out levelling up from previous attempts, Neil, is to foster as much of the private sector as possible because so many of these places you highlighted in the white paper just don't get strong enough levels of private sector investment. And one of the things that I think Andy Haldane and Michael Gove have talked about is devolving some tax-raising powers, um, which is something that um, would allow regions to, again, try and be more competitive, encourage more business investment. And I think the science and technology stuff is very good at fostering innovation through industrial strategy. But there's only so much you can do there because if you end up just piling public money into it, which I think is what has happened in the past, then when you hit your next inevitable downturn, it then all loses it and then you end up people just feeling even more annoyed than they were in the first place. So it feels to me there is like a sort of tension there between what you're trying to get at. A, a bit, I suppose. So I think that things like uh, government relocations, moving Treasury to Darlington are important because they, uh, they are, they are signalling as well as bringing new high-skilled jobs to that place deepening a labour market for, um, for highly skilled people. You're also signalling this is a, a, a place that you might want to invest as a private sector investor. But that can't be the end of it, because it has to be the wider private sector. And a lot of what we are doing in the white paper is exactly about that. So take another example. We, know, we said that Homes England would get back into the business of uh, urban regeneration, which sort of slightly got lost in the creation of the, um, the HCA. Um, uh, we talked about 20 places where we'll do sort of major King's Cross-style regeneration where they will use their powers, their funding, and so on um, uh, to, to regenerate areas. But they're not just doing that by spending public money. The goal, the whole point of the exercise is to create an investable pipeline for the private sector because what's happened, to Seb's point, over the last 20 or more years is that unless you are one of the very biggest cities in the UK um, in, in kind of commercial property, a lot of institutional investors have pulled out and there's been a huge drain of money and they don't want to be exposed to just one place. They want a diversified pool that they can invest into. And they don't want to take a load of risk and have to have uh, you know, high cost of capital, high margin. They would like, you know, ideally, someone like Homes England, like government, to create investable propositions, to, to work up schemes for massive regeneration of a kind that are needed in pretty much every one of our cities um, because of 
you know, pandemic and online shopping and so on. Uh, and to create, you know, create a de-risk proposition that institutional money can then flow into, even sovereign money potentially. Um, uh, and so it's all about us being catalytic, us trying to create investable propositions, and trying to get using our relatively, always in the grand scheme of things, small amount of taxpayers funding to unlock bigger mm. amounts of that private sector funding. And that's what will really change the regeneration. Mm. I mean, by the way, I think that the scale of the task in every city and town is so monumental. I mean, just... So many places that were shopping, shopping places that just we are all shopping online that will not reverse Mm. and they will need to become places for, you know, leisure, uh, living, you know, working as well as just shopping. And that is a huge physical change where you have, there is a sensible role, even a freedom marketeer, there's a sensible role for local Mm. leadership uh, politically and for central government because there's just a collective action problem. The land's all held by different people. You can't just like change the use of one shop into a house. That's not adding a lot of value. I'm going to come back, actually, to that, to that, that point and, and local government finances in, in a second. Let me take one here. A two here, even. Let's, let's have them both. Um, yeah. Neil and uh, Sebastian. Yeah, we can do. Could, could you say? Yeah, Ian Morling, Winchester Partners. Yeah. Um, picking up on exactly what you were just saying at the end, uh, on the train coming up, I flicked through the white paper again, and the one thing which was missing... Uh, was the private sector engagement. You talk about human skills, but you don't talk about entrepreneurs, risk-takers. And that's one of the remarkable things about today is the the desire of so many of the younger generations to be entrepreneurs, to be risk-takers, and therefore to generate uh, jobs uh, locally even from these individuals. So private sector, yes, big corporations, yes, but the government money can be used to support and create pools of entrepreneurs around the country. Peter Olmerod on Rochdale was saying he wanted to have better housing there so you could keep some of the brighter young people to, to live there. It makes a lot of sense. Second thing, which you and I spoke about at one stage, Neil, is the buy-in from MPs, from the parliamentary party. And the ONS has a remarkable, long-standing set of statistics of uh, industrial employment, so um, according to the SIC's categories, it's uh, a survey done every month or every quarter, and we can create images at constituency level of what's going on. And I think that will make a lot of difference to get a buy-in from local MPs. If you're only dealing with local authorities, you're never going to get the buy-in from the local MPs. Thank so you both much. of those are questions. Yeah, thank you. And I'm so sorry, I didn't catch your name. Was it Ian? Ian. It was Ian. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, hi. John, John Godfrey from Legal & General. Um, just a, a quick question. I, I'm a, I'm a, we're big fans of what you're trying to do with the levelling up uh, white paper. Uh, devolution is clearly helpful. Um, the availability of private sector capital uh, exists and it can be leveraged in. You've alluded to that. One of the things that will make that happen is a focus on delivery, which is as laser-sharp and as organised as Andy Haldane's focus has been on the intellectual framework. So the question would be, uh, could you think about, alongside the levelling-up directors who are the advocates uh, in particular places, could you think about something which is designed at the centre or locally to help local government deliver this stuff at scale and at pace in time, uh, hopefully for... Uh, the next election or not long mm. after. Okay, thank you both. Enjoy. 
Go ahead. Just one about uh, focusing on the private sector. I do think actually that is quite through the white paper. We do talk about it a reasonable amount. The very first objective is uh, boosting productivity, pay, jobs by uh, living standards by growing the private sector. So it's built into the very first line of the first objective, uh, and it does throw through the document. But it's, it's a completely fair point to keep um, to press on this point and um, about the importance of uh, MP uh, buy-in, which we're trying to do through both the Diva. Uh, deals and also through things like shared prosperity fund in the design of them. Um, and to John's point, you mentioned the levelling up directors, which for those who don't uh, follow it, uh, we already have a, th- a thing called um, the Cities and Lo- Local Growth Unit, which is a joint project between uh, Bayes and our department, which uh, is a contact point for uh, local leaders, local authorities, uh, and so on to, to interface with Whitehall. We're going to hugely upgrade that with these uh, uh, regional uh, directors who will be very high, um, high-profile, uh, uh, high-influence people who can kind of knock heads together and be the voice of local um, places in Whitehall to go and make sure that we are pulling together all the things that they need, partly for the devolution deals, but partly more, uh, 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 more generally. Because I do think one of the best things about the city devolution process that we began in 2014 has been the ability of that to put issues of local importance onto the Whitehall agenda. You know, if you have been complaining for many years as a local place about a particular junction, the lack of some grid connection, um, the opportunity presented by some new industry or a cultural project, you can finally get that, you know, taken up to the highest level in Whitehall as part of that devolution process. So as well as all the things that they do generically in terms of devolving decision-making power, bringing a coherent strategy to a place, it's also an opportunity to just get Whitehall to know to know its way around the world a bit better. I do wonder, though, if, if there needs to be a, some sort of Michael Barvin-style delivery unit on a national scale for this, because really, if you break this down, you're talking about thousands of small-scale infrastructure projects. And what I do wonder is, obviously, given there is this political imperative for the government to try and get some progress in the next two years, but then the eight-year aims on top of that as well, you know, you know you're, you're putting a large sum of money into some places that, again, are they able to cope with that? Because one of the places I've been to is Workington in the northwest, and Allerdale Borough Council, their normal capital spend is £4 million a year. They're getting £25 million in one lump from the levelling up fund, which... Um, in the scheme of Whitehall spending, it's not a lot, but for them, it's a huge amount. And when I went round Workington um, Town Centre, they pointed to me all the things that happened last time they got money, including glass um, glass roof over the shopping centre, which is now all cracked, uh, a, a, a modernist clock, which is now broken, and toilets that are also broken as well. So when you look at that, a lot of people say, well, we had all this money, we spent it before, it didn't change it, the town has still got the same problems, and the infrastructure 20 years on has kind of withered. So what I just wonder is, is there not scope for something at a national level that is looking at how this money is spent? Is it being used effectively? Who's monitoring the suppliers? Is it being delivered on time? Is the money being wasted? Because you're putting a lot of onus on local councils to do that. No, you're, you're absolutely right, and that's why... That's why we all the different bits of the, the rewiring that we've talked about so far are being put in place. So the overall missions, the metrics that sit behind them. Yeah, but rewiring is a metaphor. I'm getting a lot, a lot of questions about particularly money at the local council level, saying local government has been very short of money for many years. It's, it's, um, 
yes. It's um, run out of money as well. It's run yeah. out of money. No, no, no it, 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 it's not going to be. <laughs> that's not going to be um, that particular problem. Um, sit very still. But <laughs> <laughs> the um, the um, a lot. Of, I'm getting a lot of questions, as I said, about about whether local councils are very strained, and this all puts too much uh, weight on them. And should they not get uh, more powers to do something about council tax and business rates? I can hold that thought for a moment, but I've got I've got a whole bunch of questions here. Have we got some more in the room? Let's, let's come to these two here. Hi, um, Caitlin at the Yorkshire Post. Um, you've touched on it briefly, um, but recently there were some ads put out for the levelling up director roles. I think at a salary mm-hmm. of a hundred, yeah, of one hundred and forty thousand um, pounds, including a number on my patch. What's going to be expected of these people is still quite vague. Do you have any more detail on what's going to be expected of them on a day-to-day basis? You know, are they going to be like spokespeople? Are they going to function like mayors? Are they going to be senior yeah. civil servants? And in addition to that, um, do you think that there'll be more pressure for them to deliver quickly, given the cost of living crisis and the size of those salaries, especially if they're working in areas which may have salaries that are smaller than the national average? Yes, Thank you. Always, can we take... take um, do, do you mind if we did quickly just answer right, that, that particular on, point? Because there's so many yeah. specific points there. So they will, they will not be spokespeople and they will not be mayors. We can't replicate the, the roles of the mayors that are there. They will be senior civil servants. Um, they will, for, for those kind of salaries, we will only appoint these people if they are people of extremely high calibre and heft and ability to make things happen. I think in our first uh, um, experiment with this in the northwest, it is making a big difference for places like Blackpool. Um, we're conscious that it's a lot of money um, and so it has to deliver for people in Yorkshire uh, and it has to serve every part of uh, Yorkshire and the Humber as well um, you know, to help uh, uh, the places where we've already got mayors and those who are trying to negotiate devolution deals to get what they need out of Whitehall and uh, uh, to know where to, to find the right person and how to unlock, uh, you know, make the magic happen in Whitehall um, uh, and to be able to help them strategically we talking about this point about capacity that there will be someone who works for all these local places to help them form their strategies in conjunction with the you know the local councils and the mcas that are there already so it's it's really there to to serve uh, local leaders and local people in yorkshire okay let's go here hi i'm um, alita as from the daily mirror um Leveling up funds were initially awarded to Tory MPs. I mean, we heard, well, to the local councils of Tory MPs, um, we heard a Sajid Javid's constituency of Bromsgo getting around £40 million. And off the back of the Chancellor's spring statement, we now know that almost a million people will be plunged into poverty, half a million children included. Do you think this has been the best way to show off the government's flagship policy of levelling up? And also... You have previously expressed your concerns about the Partygate scandal. You now know that more than 20, 20 people have been fined for attending these lockdown-breaching parties at Downing Street, and the Prime Minister has previously said that all the rules were followed. Do you think he is the best man to be leading the country at the moment, to be leading this levelling-up agenda? Thank you. Neil. So uh, on the different funds, they are all uh, objectively done and weighted towards uh, the needs of real places. So the Towns Fund is only available for the most deprived half of towns. The Leveling Up Fund runs off of uh, an index which is published, which is a mixture of uh, the different aspects of deprivation, and then is objectively assessed by civil servants and ranks, and we have no say over that, and we just fund down the list uh, according to what 
the assessment of those bids is for civil servants. With the Shared Prosperity Fund, which will be an allocation uh, rather than a competition, that will be done with a strong, I can promise you, a strong weighting towards uh, those places with the greatest need. You know, if you look at the levelling up fund, um, something like three quarters of all the money has gone into those top priority places, many of which, by the way, have Labour MPs and a huge number of shadow cabinet members have also received uh, some of those levelling up funds. But, you know, if you think about the, this agenda in the wider uh, in the wider space, you know, we are talking about huge changes to get uh, more of housing spend, not just in the capital in the greater southeast and the most affluent parts of the UK. We're talking about doing the same thing for um, uh, for research and development. We're talking about all these different things that are driving growth uh, and uh, prosperity towards the poorer parts of these countries. That, uh, uh, and many of those places have local Labour councils or local um, uh, 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 Labour MPs. And I think one of the things that's been attractive about this programme and about the devolution programme more generally has been that whatever happens at the national level and the normal partisan knockabout, uh, we have managed to work constructively uh, uh, with uh, councils, whatever their political persuasion is, to try and achieve some of the things that they know have needed doing for a very long time. So um, I, don't, I don't think the tenor of your question is correct mm. at all. Okay, thanks. I'm going to take one more in the room and then a few more online and then we're going to have to wrap up. So one more over here. All right, if that's going to take a bit of acrobatics, not, not at all. Any thanks. Hi, uh, Richard Barry from Quattro. Uh, I was interested to hear you say that investment in housing and transport in the southeast uh, can be a vicious circle and pour fuel on the fire of the existing problems. Um, do you think that part of levelling up is not just increasing house building investment in the north and uh, left behind areas, but also reducing it and easing it in the southeast? I think there is a win-win, yes, absolutely. That you know, If you look internationally, um, there is a clear correlation between places that have a stronger economy overall and places that have a more balanced economy. And it's not, it's not hard to see why that would be, because if you have a, an economy where parts of it are overheating, people got to follow cows, they've got to get on the train in the morning, and at the same time you have places that are you know, crying out for more jobs and investment, where assets they've got are underused... You can see the scope for a win-win that will raise the overall economic performance of the country. Now, getting getting some cities that have lost population over the last thirty years uh, growing more strongly will take a degree of pressure off the uh, housing need and pressures in the overheating parts of the country. They can't take them away, right? They can't uh, stop the need for significant house building in in affluent places, but they can take the pressure off a bit and make the economy stronger overall. I think. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to read out a batch of of, of ones online and uh, use it as a prompt for last thoughts from from both of you. Um, though I, I would throw in one particular just a comment or question from Vernon Bobdenor, um, saying some health functions have been devolved to Greater Manchester to integrate with social care. Many hope that this could be a model for other combined authorities, but the outcomes so far appear to have been disappointing. Why is this? Might tuck that in. But I've got a lot really about. Um, first place, what, ta- what role do um, cities have and what role does London have? Is there any protection for rural areas in this? Are they going to get their fair share? Um, about accountability um, between Whitehall and, and local authorities as this money begins to move and why are we talking just about England as we appear to be not about Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, don't they? deserve their share of levelling up. Um, I, I've, I've summarised in that um, great kind of um, 
patches of questions. Thank you very much. People have put them very subtly, very well. Um, and there are many on the same themes. Mm. So perhaps um, each of you would like uh, right, to talk about these. Why don't Sebastian, why don't you go first? Yeah, I think the role of cities is a very crucial one here because obviously some of the, the first... You've just written a great piece on the FT. Don't level down London or I'm paraphrasing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I was going to punt, punt my wares once again. And, <laughs> but yeah, I think this is when you obviously look at what's happened with London's transport, which is a huge problem that essentially for two years no one used TfL and the government's put £5 billion, which sounds like a huge amount of money into the system, but there's still no long-term funding plan for TfL. And we, um, they've already had to put mothball Crossrail 2, which was, um, I think, a project first started by Boris Johnson. They've had to mothball the extension of the Bakerloo line. They've also had to mothball the new, tra- um, um, new trains for the Bakerloo line, which, were, which are now 70 years, which will be 70 years old by the time they eventually replaced in the late 2030s or early 2040s. Now, of course, governments can't do everything. You've got huge other priorities in terms of recovering from the pandemic. But I think... There is certainly a mindset of certainly some MPs that it's very much you have to level down London to level up elsewhere. And I think if you went to a lot of focus groups in these places, some people might have that perception as well. They like the idea that our national discourse is focused on towns and places that have not been spoken of. But you've got to keep in fact the, the economic importance of London and other cities. You know, mm-hmm. London contributes before the pandemic £36 billion to the Exchequer, 22% of UK GDP. And the stat the TfL love is that for every Pounds spent on London transport investment, 55p of it goes to jobs outside of London. So the new Piccadilly line trains are being built in Goole in mm. Yorkshire and the new Net Zero buses are being built in Northern Ireland in Scarborough. So I think it is very important in all this as well to realise that, yes, you might want to take some of the economic heat off the southeast and try and create jobs and target investment there, mm. but not at the deprivation of London. And the kind of thing you could do very easily is just sort TfL's funding, get it a, a, a medium-term solution. You know, London is the only... Did you say very easily? I, th- those, I mean, those, those are the words that I also... We may I be in the closing on. minute, but I can't, I can't <laughs> let that go by. Well, I was going to say... London is the only city that gets no central government funding for its transport system, and it was cut in 2015. There oh, is no, no, a no, very no, no, easy not, way to solve it for you. There's just more money to to everything. Uh, no, it was, it was devolved in 2015. So London in a sense, is the model for what we need to do for other places. So, mm-hmm. as you know, London's economic performance has pulled away from the rest of the country uh, over the period that we have data for since 1997. Mm-hmm. It's got probably about 30% higher income compared to 70% higher income. So it's, it's done very well. And we have, you know, absolutely all the parts of the UK economy are connected. No desire at all to do down in London. It's crucial for other parts of the country for all the reasons that Seb um, uh, mentions. But nonetheless, we've actually got to do for some of the other places what we did for London. We made major capital investments to help build its independent fare box so it doesn't need to get the uh, uh, central uh, government direct funding anymore. So, you know, we built the Jubilee line, we built Crossrail, we built the M25 and so on and so forth. You know, major cultural investments, you know, multiple times higher than the rest of the country. Huge concentration of R&D spending. So it had, it had the tools to become self-sufficient. That's what other places want. They don't want handouts. They want to be able to be self-sufficient in the way that London is. And on the UK, I don't think we have been talking about England. We've been talking about the UK Shared Prosperity mm-hmm. Fund, which is something we're doing across all the UK. We're talking about R&D and the Glasgow Innovation mm-hmm. Accelerator, something we do across all UK. You know, we need to respect the devolution settlements um, for Scottish Government, Welsh Government, Northern Ireland Executive and so on. We do respect them. Uh, we're trying to always have the right working relationship um, with them, but nonetheless, where there are UK-wide things like net zero gender, big opportunities uh, uh, in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland as well, and we want to make sure that we are playing our part too, while 
respecting the role of those devolved governments uh, at the same time. It's absolutely a UK-wide mission. And some of, although there's serious poverty in parts of London, and someone who did six years point, of outreach the, the first, questioners have also well, made. yeah, it's yeah. six years of work with street homeless people in London. I'm very conscious of the, the real poverty there is in London, but there are also places of great deprivation in in Wales and Northern Ireland, mm. and indeed parts of Scotland as well. Even though it's quite a strong economy overall, mm. so. Um, uh, absolutely UK-wide agenda, no desire to do down London whatsoever, rather a rep- an attempt to replicate some of the things that have gone right for the capital in some other places too. Okay, well, on that note, we are going to have to stop. Um, we have, uh, we have um, thanks to everyone's terrific questions and the patience of uh, the two panellists, we've gone three minutes over, which breaks one of my rules at the IFG, but it's been an absolutely fascinating session. I'm, sure, I'm sorry I couldn't get more questions in. So it, um, it just remains for me to thank you all online and in the room, uh, for us all to thank our two panellists, and then the people in the room can go home by TFL, thus adding to its very easy, <laughs> very <laughs> easily <laughs> repaired finances. Thank you all, and thank you, thank Neil, you. Neil O'Brien. Thank you. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.